You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to part two of our interview with Daniel Scribner. Now, in part one, we talked about his time at Square. We talked a little bit about turnover at startups and a lot more of his time in the startup ecosystem. But now in part two, we're really going to find out about his time right now at Flow. He's leaving Silicon Valley. And well, let's just dive right into it. So let's start the episode. All right. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. You had also mentioned that through your experience, you realized that getting access to the best deals was the most important thing. As a new investor, what advice can you give on how to go about getting that access to those early deals? You know, unless you are famous on social media somehow, you are some, you know, kind of well-known investor or well-known entrepreneur or well-known executive. If you're any of those things, you can definitely get access to deals. Just, I think it's helpful to take a step back and talk about what do we, what does that actually mean, get access to deals? Because I think that helps, maybe might help people understand why I've taken the approach that I have. So getting access to deals is a multi-multi-part problem. One is knowing, knowing interesting entrepreneurs with companies that are going to be raising rounds soon that are venture-backed where you could be an investor. So that's one part. Part two is, you know, honestly, like not... You see all the time on Twitter, VCs, you know, and this is one of my... I, I find it somewhat hilarious, where people will tweet things like, here's, here's the five deals I should have got into, but I said no. And they do it as if it's not going to happen again. And they've learned all their lessons. And I'm sorry, but like every, there will always be deals that you miss because it's not the right time. You're not ready to make that allocation. You didn't know that the round was happening. Uh, you happened to not catch up with that entrepreneur this month and you've done it for the last six months and you missed the moment, you know, the news that they're raising this round. There's a myriad of reasons why you either won't know the right companies, won't have personal access to those rounds yourself. And so I think for most people, I think you have to really sit down and know in a very warts and all way what you're going to be able to be successful at getting access to and what you won't. And so really sitting down and thinking like, do I know entrepreneurs personally that, that I'm going to be able to reach out to them and get allocation in their round? Will they be excited to ha have me in the round? Because that's another piece too, is a lot of people just think like, oh, if people just know my name, that will help. That's not really it. You know, a lot like a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're doing it right, they care a lot about who's on their cap table because those are people that are not going away until there's some sort of a liquidity event. And, you know, your investors are with you through the life of a company for better or worse most of the time. Um, and so there's a bunch of reasons. And so I just, I'm trying to throw out a handful of those to give people a sense for all the reasons that they may not be able to get into a round. And that's why I think an access class in my mind is I have, and the way I've tried to think about it at a high level is through my experience, through my connections, I have access to a very small spectrum of deals, you know, and they're deals largely of people I've worked with at companies like Square, um, who are now founders and entrepreneurs and are raising rounds themselves. Those are deals I can get into. As your network grows, you can kind of get into deals from a secondary point of view of like, I know this person, he knows this entrepreneur, he just invested. I, I think it's really interesting. I'd like to invest as well too. So you can kind of sit down and do that assessment really honestly and try to figure out what do those companies look like? Because I think some of the things you also want to think about are like, and this is true for most people. Again, if you're only investing out of your personal network, 
you're likely only seeing deals in a very small vein of industries, or you're seeing founders that are pursuing a similar strategy. Or if you worked at Snapchat or Snap, you're seeing people that are constantly doing social products. And I think another thing too, and the reason I've done 100 plus investments and tried to be very agnostic about how I get access to those is again, you're trying to get access to the best deals. A really important secondary point is I think you should also try to get access to the best deals in a broad spectrum of industries. I think most people, if they sit down and and do that kind of uh, reflection, they'll come to the same conclusion I did, which is, yes, maybe you have access to some deals. It's probably not going to get you the diversity that you want. And it's probably not going to get you into all of the types of companies that you'd like access to. Cool. So where do you go from there? Well, the, the two things that I pursued, you know, initially it was investing through syndicates, which are now a lot of syndicates are moving to be rolling funds. But that's a great way to basically say, hey, I likely wouldn't be able to get into this round myself. You do. And you're going to see different deals, different founders. You've got a different network that I do. If all I care about is getting into the best deals, and if I invest in this deal, I have to give you 20% of my returns. That is not, I mean, like, and for anyone who's done venture investing, when you have the types of outcomes you can have in venture investing, you realize really quickly that all day long, you will pay someone 20 to 25% of the profits you generate if they can get you really incredible returns. And so I think, you know, I started investing through syndicates. And again, I would just encourage people to maybe think about all the ways that they can access early stage companies. And those are everything from directly in friends and family rounds. You know, and again, there's a bunch of other requirements. You have to be an accredited investor. You have to have capital at, you know, check sizes that people want to write. So you can invest directly. You can invest through vehicles like syndicates. You can reach out to venture capital funds and say, hey, I'm not going to be an institutional investor in your next round and write you a $50 million check, but I can help your companies in these ways. I think I can add value to what you do in these ways. I would love, you know, because a lot of venture funds, people don't know it, but they have sidecar vehicles. They have vehicles for, for advisors. They do typically reserve some allocation for individuals. Think about all of those and, and be very open-minded about, again, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get into the best deals. Why? Because venture is inherently a power law game and a very small amount of the winners account for most of the capital and, and the returns that actually um, get generated. With all of that in mind, really think about how, in what ways you're best set up to access it in a way that you can get access to the best deals across industries in as agnostic and diversified a way as possible. And when you're looking at deals from an individual company versus investing in a fund, what's the difference in underwriting that you do for, for those investments? How are you looking at them differently? They couldn't be more different. If I'm investing in a fund, really the answer, really what I'm trying to kind of answer for myself is, do I think that this fund can have it will be able to see and get access to and invest in meaningfully different deals than I would be able to get access to individually. Because again, if you're taking, and this is why it all, at the end of the day, it all boils down to, and I would, I'll just say it now, anyone listening has to figure out this equation for themselves. Do not borrow anyone else's equation or idea about how to invest. You have to do that homework yourself. Don't borrow it. Don't kind of just take someone's point of view and, and take that on really think about what's going to work best for you. For me, like I said, I was already doing deals individually. And so funds inherently is like I'm, I'm adding another ingredient into that mix. And so for me, I've continued to write deals individually. I've continued to kind of be a GP and invest in larger deals and have LPs invest alongside me. Anything that I'm doing is in addition to those direct investments. And so 
if you don't do direct investments, then investing in a fund might be a very different exercise. And maybe you are really looking at their historical portfolios. You're trying to talk to the entrepreneurs that they invested in, find out, are they someone that they loved having on as an investor? Why? How were they able to add value? How do you think they stand out for other entrepreneurs in the space looking to raise capital? You know, and you really want if if you're not investing in deals directly, then I think you, you want to ask some of those questions and look into those things. But you also want to just understand some of their preferences, like what what stage of companies do they invest in, what industries do they invest in, do they do follow on investments, or do they typically just write one check size? Do they invest in multiple stages in a company, or are they just special specialists at say something like seed or pre seed or Series A? Um, so know all of those things. But for me, again, I was doing those direct investments. So it was largely an exercise. Again, if I'm trying to get access to the best deals, he, I've done this reflection exercise of trying to think really deeply and thoughtfully and realistically about the types of deals and companies I can get into. Any fund I'm adding into the mix is because I think they will see things. They will, they will see different companies. They will be able to pick and choose those deals as thoughtfully as I would with my own capital, where I have conviction that they're going to do it right, do it well. And some of the other, I'll just throw out one other thing. One other heuristic um, that I found really useful is just really looking for skin in the game. So most of the funds that I try to invest in, and this is just a general rule of thumb I've taken, of anytime I'm giving someone else my capital, always, always, always want to make sure that they, the partners, the people managing that fund have substantial skin in the game. And you know what does that mean and why is that important? Skin in the game really just says, you know, in venture, like we talked about, there's something called carry. Which basically says, you know, if you, I'm just going to make a really crude, bad analogy here. <laughs> if you invest $10 into this investment with this fund, and let's say they generate um, a $20 return. So at the end of the day, you're going to get twice your money back. They're going to take 25% or 20% of that return back. Skin in the game on the positive side, that means that if they do the investments, you know, if they do a good job of finding the right companies, getting into those deals at the right valuations for the right terms, um, holding on to those well, liquidating those well. Again, there's a lot of things that go into realizing really great returns at the end of the day. It's not just picking the companies. It's all the decisions between from the start of a deal all the way to when something eventually liquidated. You know, you, so you want to understand what that process looks like. Totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Underwriting LP versus a startup or an individual company investment. And you're talking about picking the right fund. Yeah, you want to look at what their process looks like from the time they start a conversation all the way to when something is liquidated. That only gives you a sense, if you're thinking about carry, that's skin in the game on the upside. What you want to always see is skin in the game on the downside. And what that means is, ideally, the reason that's important is anybody that you're giving money to, you want them to be incredibly thoughtful with it. Because yes, your goal of giving them that money is that they multiply it. One of the other things that can happen is that they don't multiply your money, they lose your money. <laughs> and, and typically how that happens is people aren't, they don't have a high enough bar and they're not being thoughtful enough, diligent enough about investing your capital. And so what I always want to see is skin on the game on the downside. And what that really looks like is how much money of the total amount this fund is raising is being contributed by the partners. And typically what you'll find if you look at that, and I've seen so many of these pitches now, there's so many ways that people try to spin this of saying, we're giving X percentage of one stat I've seen funds being like, oh, well, the GPs and our team is will be contributing 2% of the capital. And then if you actually dig into that, one, I think 2% is egregiously low. If you're raising a fund, I've made it a rule of thumb, especially for the fund that I run where I'm a GP, I will always be more than 
of the capital in any deal and any fund I raise. And for me, that's honestly the the lowest I think that bar should should be because that means that one of every $10 that you're investing is one of your own. I think anytime you have that skin in the game, not just on the upside, but on the downside. So again, if one of every $10 is yours and you lose 50% of the value of the fund, you know, you're going to take a substantial hit personally. Square goes public. But then you decide to leave Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, for Colorado. Why did you decide this move? And do you see this as a trend happening? I mean, now in COVID, I'm seeing it. But do you see it happening post-COVID in the new norm? At the end of the day, that decision was super personal. My wife and I had spent 10 years in San Francisco. We had an incredible time there. But we knew that that, we knew that, that wasn't where we wanted to be long-term. And just to say, that doesn't mean that there's anything bad about Silicon Valley or about the Bay Area or about San Francisco. Like anywhere else, there's pros and cons. And I think those areas now are probably more polarizing than they've been in the past. You know, San Francisco is going through a pretty rough time at the moment. I have no, I think, I think it'll be just fine in the end for San Francisco and for Silicon Valley. I don't think any of this is a death nail for any of those kind of places or, you know, that kind of environment in the, in the US. But things are, are definitely changing. But that decision for us was really just, we knew it wasn't where we wanted to be long-term. One thing that I had thought a lot about Being in San Francisco, there's a bunch of pros and there's a bunch of cons. The pros are really, I think for anyone that's interested in working with early stage companies, whether as an employee, whether as an investor, whether as an advisor, you have to do some tour of duty to kind of earn your stripes to be able to get respect. Because it's at the end of the day, it's a very small industry. It's a very small group of people. It's very tribal. And I think, you know, a good and and a bad sense sometimes, but I think it's mostly good. You have to prove that you can add value, you can be successful here, and you have to build up a bit of a reputation. And so I think it was enormously important, especially for the investing and advising work that I still do, that I spent time there, that I have those kind of data points to, to point to, that I still try to cultivate a ton of relationships in San Francisco. So that's the pros. The cons were, you know, one, I wanted to, when I, when I looked forward into how I might want to invest five years or 10 years down the road. I wanted to not invest all of my capital in San Francisco, you know, and I think today, if I was starting out today, and this is the approach I'm doing, and for anyone listening, I would encourage you to think about this too. If you rewind, say 10 years ago, San Francisco was really it. But now New York companies are doing tremendously well in early stage, you know, so there's a lot of really interesting opportunities there. So I felt like I wanted to build a network, more of a network in New York. That same thing's happening in LA, that same thing's happening in Texas, that same thing's happening, you know, in places like Austin, Texas we're seeing now is it's really there's i think if you're in if you're investing in entrepreneurship part of the your strategy is investing at the earliest stages and it's typically venture backed companies it used to be you could do that in one geographic market now that's starting to happen all over the US and what you're seeing is there's very different dynamics you know you can get into deals in Austin Texas and in the Midwest at insanely low multiples of what that if that same company were in San Francisco or in New York they all i will say it that doesn't mean that it's a better deal. You're not a value investor. If you're investing in early stage companies, you what you're ultimately trying to find is you're making a bet that this company can scale and achieve success in a huge way. And you're going to be compensated to the degree to which they're able to do that. And so a lot of companies in the Midwest are going to be challenged there. They might not be able to have a breakout company. We're starting to see some of those things happening though. And I think directionally, what that means is I fully expect 10 years down the road that most funds, and you know, we're already seeing this from the majority of the top tier funds, are not investing in one geographic area. They're investing in a, in a more diversified way. They may still have the best network and the best advantage in a specific geographic market. But I think that's another 
advantage for individual investors is we don't have any of those super hard constraints. We could be more agnostic. We can be a little bit more eccentric, you know, with how we want to invest. So that's, that's what I saw. And I think the big benefits of leaving is I now think of San Francisco as one of multiple markets that I want to invest in. I want to have relationships in. I want to have a network in. I want to have investments in. It, it allowed me to be a little bit out of the fray and a little bit out of the bubble. So I think I can also judge things a little bit more objectively. From my understanding, I mean, even though you're in Colorado now, you're not resting at all. In fact, from my understanding, you invested in a company and it evolved to now you're currently the CEO of this startup. Can you talk a little bit about this company, what you're doing and that transition and how you stepped in to be the CEO and what were some of the surprises you uncovered? I took over a little bit over a year and a half ago at a company called Flow. It's actually based in Canada. You can find out more about it at getflow.com. I had never invested in it, but I knew one of the partners that helped run it. So Flow is a subsidiary of Tiny Capital in Canada. It's managed by two incredible guys named Andrew Wilkinson and Chris Sparling. And the model, basically the, the quick story of, of Tiny is they started out with agency called MetaLab, uh, which they still run. While they were there, very much like 37 Signals, they encountered the same problem that a lot of agencies have of you know inherently like, work ebbs and flows. And so there are times that you don't have a lot of client projects to do. What do you do with that time? And so what MetaLab did was they worked on a few things that they felt and hoped could be really successful standalone products. And one of those was Flow. And so Flow actually was spun out of MetaLab and launched about about 10 years ago. I've known Andrew Wilkinson for 10 years. I haven't known him super closely, although we've stayed in touch during that time. I've really talked on and off. I really enjoyed watching what he had done and how he had evolved Tiny. So we had a conversation. This is probably two years ago now. He, so he's from the Tiny's based in Canada. Uh, Flow is actually based in Victoria, British Columbia. But Andrew and Chris were actually going to be in Boulder, Colorado, which is where my office is during the week. And so I asked him if we could go grab coffee. Went into that meeting with nothing, no other intentions than just like, man, I'm super excited to get to chat and actually catch up and talk in person with Andrew and Chris. Coming out of that meeting, you know, that meeting really quickly turned to from me learning more about what's been going on to me getting asked a bunch of questions like, what are you interested in now? What are you focused on? What are you excited about? Andrew's a master of doing this. And so by the time that meeting had wrapped, uh, it ended in a very different way than I thought it would when I went into that meeting. But by the end of that meeting, it was it felt like there was a really interesting opportunity for me to come in and take over as one of the CEOs of their portfolio companies. And so we continued talking for six months and it was a six month process of kind of them vetting me, me vetting, me vetting them. Ultimately, I took over as a CEO of Flow. Was just to try to contextualize that a little bit. That was the first time. It's the first time I've ever been the CEO of a company. I've launched companies of my own. I've run small businesses of my own. But I think being the CEO of a company that you really intend to scale is is very different. I was excited about it for a few reasons. Number one, I as an investor, you know, you build up a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for the entrepreneurs that you get to invest in because they're really the ones doing the hard work. <laughs> if you're if you're being honest with yourself. And being an entrepreneur is often brutally, brutally difficult. And so I felt like as an investor, you know, and this was very much what I remember when I was at Square, you know, I joined as a product designer, ended up getting offered about six months into working at Square, the opportunity to take over for the design team, ended up doing that. And that's what helped me be able to join the leadership team and lead at Square in a really big way when I was there. Similarly, when I was making that decision of whether to lead the team, I don't know if I was really interested at that time, but the, the thought that kept bubbling up is, 
at the end of the day, whether you're successful at this or not, which a lot of that in my mind is just fear, just butting its head and being, you know, kind of like, well, thinking about immediately jumping to all the ways this could go wrong. And that's typically not how life or anything works if you really apply yourself. But I felt like if I wasn't able to be successful in this role, I will still have learned a tremendous amount that will make me a better leader. It'll make me a better designer. It'll make me a better leader of design teams. And it'll give me a really interesting window into leading at larger scale businesses. And so I took that same approach to, to taking over at, at Flow. And I felt like I would learn a lot. It would help me become a better investor. It would help me really understand what it takes to be able to lead a company and all the intricacies and challenges that come with that. And just really quickly, I mean, it has been brutally difficult, but it's been immensely rewarding for anyone that's going from not being an entrepreneur, you know, basically anyone who's, who's a first-time entrepreneur, it is an incredibly difficult act. I also made it much more difficult on myself than it traditionally is. You know, so I took over for a company that has 10 years of history. I took over a team, you know, that I didn't hire. All are incredible people, but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's different when you kind of inherit a team and take over a team. It's more about building trust with that team, really trying to figure out what they're great at, really making sure they're in the best roles. But a lot of it is honestly building trust with that team. You know, we were also a bootstrap company that had taken very little outside capital and the company was contracting. All those factors are in play. And my goal when I took over Flow was to come in and take a different strategy than the previous management team. You know, the idea that I had was kind of inverting the previous equation, which was very focused on just user acquisition. I guess what I recognized in Flow is if the business is contracting, that's clearly for a reason. And I don't think it's because we're not advertising correctly. I think we should probably pause and take a step back and really look at why people are churning. And if you have a SaaS business, it's part, you know, I would say it's primarily because of the product, but you know, achieve product market fit or you haven't been able to maintain product market fit, which is really the problem. I think when you get, you know, five, 10 years into a company, you know, I took over for Flow in March of 2019. And it's taken us 18 months, but we've been able to turn around the business and get back to growth. And we did that by literally from the ground up rebuilding the product that we have um, so that it could compete with all the players that we compete with in the productivity space. And just really quickly, I haven't, I haven't mentioned it, but um, what Flow is, is we're really building a productivity platform for teams. And we're trying to pursue an approach in building a really powerful all-in-one tool. So you're, you have one single tool you can use for chat and real-time communication that you can use for tracking high-level work and objectives through projects that you can use for tracking really low-level work in terms of what everyone on the team needs to do and by when and what all the details are for that work and tasks, helping teams really be able to use less tools, get more done, and make time for the deep work that actually needs to happen. Because the experience that I've had at previous teams is you're trying to move the ball forward and all the important things you need to get done. And throughout the day, you're being bombarded by emails and text messages and meetings and Slack notifications. And I feel like so much of work today is honestly doing whatever you can to try to ignore all of those things and shut out the world so you can get work done. And so the idea with Flow is we're trying to build a tool that's really built around and supports deep work and move us towards a world where we all use fewer tools. We have less passwords to manage, less notifications to juggle, and we can actually move the ball forward. Okay, so with everything that you've done, your career, you've gained knowledge, you've gained an amazing network, you've gained money. From your experience of all those things, knowledge, experience, network, money, those four, what's the most valuable to you? I would always say knowledge. And, you know, I think part of that's just Naval Ravikant has a great quote, which is, you know, about if, you know, we live in a world with multiple dimensions and you can be really successful in one. 
you know, what you really want to try to do is be able to have the knowledge and the experience and the understanding to say, be successful in 99 out of 100 alternate universes. So if you were to start from scratch, a bunch of different realities, a bunch of different worlds, you would be able to figure out how to be successful in each of those, be able to be successful, build great, build a great network, you know, just be able to work with really incredible people. I think to be able to do that, it really all comes down to knowledge. And so that's, you know, for me, the, the ways I've tried to live that out is, and this was a reason that I started investing, a reason I started advising, a reason I left Apple to go to Square, a reason I took over as CEO of Flow was, I think the best way to do that is by always optimizing for your growth curve being as steep as possible. You know, I need to make sure that you're going in a, you need to make sure you know that you're going in a clear direction, what you're headed towards. But if you have that clarity, then what you're really trying to do is just wrap, kind of gain traction and not lose traction and just continue to move on to the next level. Because for me, you know, I think as, as maybe cliche as it is, I think of at least the professional side of my life is very much like a video game. And my, my job is to learn as much as I can and continue to try to get better so I can play the game at higher and higher levels. Because I think what that allows you to do is at each of those levels, if you're doing it right, you gain more freedom, you gain more autonomy, you gain more wisdom, and you hopefully are better able to live out all those principles and kind of do well by the knowledge that you have. So for me, it's all knowledge. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, flow, anything, what's the best way to go about doing it? So people can follow me at everything that I write, everything that I release at danielscrivener.com. Scrivener is S-C-R-I-V as in Victor, N-E-R danielscrivener.com. I also have a podcast called Outliers. I mean, you can see all the new episodes that we publish there on danielscrivener.com. Goal of that podcast is to interview the top 1% of people across industries. So we talk to entrepreneurs, we talk to investors, we talk to people in health and fitness, people in entertainment, award-winning authors to try to deconstruct what they've mastered and what they've learned along the way. So it's my way of trying to kind of focus on knowledge and, and pass that on to other people. So people can find out more about that at danoscriptor.com as well. And then for Flow, anyone that's interested, we'd love to have you as a customer. Feel free to check out Flow at getflow.com. Great. We're going to have all those links in the show notes. And Daniel, I want to thank you for taking your time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our listeners, please share this with your network and leave a review on iTunes or any other podcast platform and encourage us to create great content like this. So Daniel, once again... Thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 